Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Chad Hawk with Matt Dowd, and we are Renegade Atlas, charting a new path for your life. So, Matt, today we're going to have somebody on the show, yep. um, Brad Jersak, yep. and he's going to be taking a lot of the questions that we've got uh, from our listeners, and we're going to be asking him. He's going to go into a very complete yeah. uh, his way of viewing answers for these listeners' questions, right? Exactly. Yeah. He's a subject matter expert, I would say. Yeah. Um, from a certain school, you know, yeah. of thought. And he has a lot a lot of really interesting things to say about some of these big faith questions and sort of existential <laughs> faith type questions. And he has a, a a broad background going from Baptist to Mennonite to charismatic to Eastern Orthodox. Right. Um, he has a, a wide variety that he brings to the table when he discusses this and you and I can sit here and we can discuss our, our ideas like we did on the last episode. And when we get content that or people who provide more depth or more contact or, or perhaps a new way of looking at things, our goal, I think you and I would agree totally on this. Our goal is to stimulate thought, to stimulate a newer passion for your relationship with God. Right. Yeah. And for what it means in your life, you know, right. like how it actually plays out. Not that it's just a separate religious activity, you know, that we do on Sunday or whatever day and it's set aside, but like how it actually infiltrates your whole life and, you know, helps how, you chart that new yeah, path, how, how as becomes, our slogan says, you know. Yeah, it, it yeah. really, it's a confirmational, constitutional change for how you live, conduct, comport, think, live, breathe, eat, right. make all your choices. Yeah. That Romans 12, you know, not conforming to the pattern of the world, but being transformed, transformed by the renewing of our mind. mind. Yeah. 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 That's what it's all about. Well, let's give a listen. Sounds good. Yeah, we're here today with Brad Jersak. Um, and Brad has been 20 years a pastor and now the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick and a monastery preacher in the Orthodox Church. He's the author of A More Christ-Like God, A More Christ-Like Way, and his most recent publication, In, Incarnation and Inclusion, which is something we're going to talk about a little bit today. But uh, Brad, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, so let's just, you know, what we had was we pulled our listeners a few, actually, it's been several weeks ago now, right. but we got some really interesting questions from them about uh, what we asked them is if you could ask an, an expert, like a quote unquote expert on faith and religion and God, you know, what questions would you ask? And so you're one of those guys, you're an expert on that stuff. So we want to ask you some of our listeners questions. Um, and the first one has so much to do with the, that book in, um, it says, do people who have never been introduced to God uh, get punished or go to hell? Yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, it's sort of loaded because um, what does it mean to be introduced to God? Um, I think it means you meet at like a cocktail party or something. (laughs) Right, right. And what does it mean to be punished? And what do we mean by go to hell, right? (laughs) So there's a lot there. But um, um, if we go to the scriptures, I find it very interesting that John chapter 1 describes the Logos, 
who will become flesh in Jesus Christ as already creating all things, sustaining all things. But then he also says this in John 1, that, that he is the light who lightens, enlightens everyone who comes into the world. So there's this idea that Christ is the light of the world who shines on everyone even before they hear about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1 also talks about that he's the Word. And in being the Word, he is what God has to say about himself. And that this Word can speak to those who've not yet known him as the Lamb. So I think of it that way, that he's the light who enlightens everyone. He's the Word who speaks to everyone. And then at some point, a witness comes along, like John the Baptist does in John 1, and says, and by the way, he also came in the flesh, and he's the lamb who's taken care of things. So here's the question. <clears throat> Can you be introduced to and have a relationship with Christ, the light of the world, or Christ, the word of God, prior to hearing about Jesus? Well, instead of giving my opinion on that, uh, in the book, In, I look at, at a test case of that. Um, <clears throat> and the test case is Cornelius in the book of Acts. So remember, this guy's not a Christian yet. But it says that God has heard his prayers. God has seen his almsgiving. God tells Peter he's acceptable to me and that he's a righteous man who I've already made clean. It describes his faith practices with approval, and it describes his spiritual experiences, including words of knowledge, visions, angelic visitations, as authentic spiritual experiences. And he's still not a Christian. So I'll start there. Did, did Cornelius know God? Um, it sure seems like he has a relationship with God, and it's not just... Um, you know, someone who has ideas about God that are out there, but like real encounters and that God has taken note of him. And if he's already acceptable and righteous, I'm asking myself, wait a minute. Are we saying if he'd got in a chariot accident before he'd met mm -hmm. Peter, what would happen to him? And as evangelicals, we always wanted to know. It's like, where would he go? You know, to right. go to heaven or go to hell? It doesn't say. What it does say is that he's acceptable, righteous, and clean <laughs> before he knows Jesus. So um, I just look around my life at people like that. Do I know people who have a living relationship with the word of God or the light of God? Who is Christ without knowing it's Christ? And the examples I could give are like, I give lots of examples in the book about especially people in 12-step recovery who have a transforming relationship with the God of their understanding who is loving, caring, forgiving, responsive, and relational. I'm like, well, that's Christ, but they don't know it's Christ yet. <laughs> right. How long will it be before they know that the light and the word that they see and they hear is also the lamb? Well, that I watch for those opportunities to say, hey, did you know this one you already know, who's already changing you and setting you free, also was embodied in Jesus of Nazareth? I think God has to just like be patient around that sometimes because the name of Jesus has been so associated with bad Christianity 
And he wants addicts to know you don't have to be associated with bad Christianity <laughs> to know me. Let's get started. And then maybe we'll go from there. Um, I, I think there's one other thing I want to say about, oh yeah. So then the question is, if you can know God as word and light, if that is a relationship with Christ, then why bother telling them about the gospel or Jesus? Well, John Wesley answered that question. He came as a missionary to North America, Methodist missionary, and well, the founder of Methodism. And he met First Nations people, we call them here, you call them uh, Native, Native Americans. Americans. He met, he met them and he found out that a lot of them already had a relationship with God as creator, that they had active prayer lives and he saw real fruit of the spirit in them, even though they hadn't heard the gospel. So he had to answer the question, why, why would I share my faith? Why would I share the Christian gospel with people who already clearly know creator God, worship him, love him, experience him? His answer, I love it, he says, so that they would know the full inheritance right. that they have in Christ and that they would experience the fullness of their assurance of that. So what the Christian gospel brings into it is not just God as creator, but God as Abba in me. That's, that's a major thing. It's through Christ that we know God as Abba, Father. And second that we would know that the cross has now conquered death and that our sins are forgiven and you don't have to be afraid anymore or offer sacrifices. Well, that's worth telling people. And so he did. And so I do. Yeah. So I'll stop there for now. That Man. may raise some questions. <clears throat> well, yeah, it's just one or two. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to decide which way to go with it. Cause there's like, there's so much in there. Um, so let's start here. Maybe what about this idea and this is kind of my own question too, honestly, like where do we get the idea and is it correct that we have to make some kind of decision before we physically die to ensure our well-being in the afterlife? Okay. So again, there's multiple layers there, right? So one is, do we have to make a decision? And what decision is that? And do we have to do it in this life? And what if we don't? So I'll say this. Um, when I read the New Testament and I hear the words of Christ himself in the Gospels, there is a call to turn to him. The call to turn to him is not simply about a heaven-hell binary after you die, especially in the Gospel of John. The call to turn to Jesus is to come out of the bondage to darkness and into the fullness of life that is knowing him. So in other words, in the Gospel of John, he's not, hell isn't an afterlife threat. Hell is the human existence that we've created here that is just killing us. And mm. the human condition is in really rough shape. And it, is so, and it is shrouded in darkness and fear and shame. So the, if for John, perishing or condemnation is a now reality associated with this darkness that we've loved and and that's ruinous so too turning to christ isn't just about ensuring that you go to heaven after you die it's about entering eternal life now so john 3 is really clear on this i didn't come into the you know to the world to condemn you you already stand condemned look around watch right. the news tonight however um and then he doesn't promise them heaven <laughs> he says 
he says, I, I, um, if you would believe in me, you would, you would have eternal life, which we could define as fullness of life, fullness of joy in relationship to Jesus. This is eternal life, that you would know me and that you'd know my Father in you. So, so is a response necessary? Absolutely. Is a response in this life important? Oh, it's urgent. Not because of someday, but because of today. Today it's urgent. Um, and then, but you snuck in a little thing there at the end. It's like the, the, the question is, what if, what if we didn't make that response in this life? Well, that would be a problem if death hadn't been conquered. <laughs> and yet Christ has conquered death. And so that means that Romans 8, death cannot separate us from the love of God. So I just think with compassion about those for whom an authentic response in this life is impossible. Let's say you're born uh, a Hindu in a village that has never heard the gospel in generations and generations. They've not heard about Jesus for some reason. And I believe God, I love God as far as I know God or the gods. I respond to the gods, to light as best I can, to love as best I can. In fact, I'm living like Cornelius. Mm -hmm. But what if Cornelius had had the chariot accident? Or what if the Hindu person who doesn't know Jesus uh, doesn't, doesn't make that willing response in this life? Is there hope for him in the next? Well, I have opinions and hopes about that, but does the Bible suggest it? Um, it seems to me that the Bible speaks about Christ speak, preaching to those who had died, even those who died in the flood, and that when he preaches to them in Hades, um, Peter's epistles say that they were made, that those who were judged in the flesh are made alive in the spirit. Ephesians says that he, when Christ descended into the lower earthly regions, he ascended again with a host of captives in his train, like a parade. So you've got these hints in the scriptures about people being rescued from Hades after death. But there's another way of asking it. Does the scriptures, do the scriptures foresee that Christ will draw all people to himself? And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, yeah. At least I've found about 32 verses in the New Testament that just outright say that. So what about judgment? Well, we pass through a judgment. But in that judgment, I'm hopeful that we'll turn to Christ. And that we won't get there. Let's say um, someone I love just died and... I was hoping they'd say the sinner's prayer three minutes before they died. Then they're okay. Right. But three minutes after they died, Christ visits them and goes, oh, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do now. Like, come right. on. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's conquered death for that reason. So I would say that we still need to have a willing response. And if some want to waste their lives now and pass through a, a dread judgment before they make their response, uh, what a, that would be silly. But it's also possible. Uh, given the New Testament record. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on this, Dr. Chad? I mean, do you get, Brad, do you get a lot of pu pushback with this kind of view? I mean, in evangelical circles in particular? or 
uh, particularly general. evangelical circles because um, because they they have forgotten the doctrine of Christ's descent into and conquest of Hades. And I think they forgot it on purpose. And I know when I know the moment it happened, I can show you the page in John Calvin's Institutes where he said, where he goes to the line, this is the creed. He descended into hell. And what Calvin says is setting aside the creed. And then he okay. proceeds with his, with the doctrine of penal substitution. And he actually says when Christ, when the, when the creed says setting aside, or when, when the creed says he descended into hell, it doesn't mean after he died, even though the creed says so. It means he descended in, into hell on the cross when God punished him. And he knows very well that's not what the creed intended. Um, and I think why we would forget that on purpose is probably so we can hell, hold hell over people's heads and say, you have to come forward now at this meeting, because if you die on the way home, you're going to hell, and there's no hope for you. We wanted there to be no hope, so we would have leverage in our gospel. Right. But if like it's not the kid, true. The kid on Christmas, like if, you don't, if you're not good, Santa won't come. Right, right. And so what's, is that a willing response? No, that's a gun to your head. Right. <laughs> so... I do think we need a willing response, but when you have an ultimatum with, with a fiery punishment, um, I think willing response is off the table. Now it's just coercion. So let me ask you, I know I've been asked this question by two of our listeners, and that is, I've heard about this idea of predestination. Mm. Tell me, Dr. Chad, what do you think about it? <laughs> mm-hmm. So now I'm going to forward that to you, Brad. You tell me, what yeah. about predestination? Well, I'll tell you what I used to think, and I'll tell you what I think now. <laughs> I used to be a Calvinist, and I would read Ephesians 1 as if predestination was that God, and here's how we taught it, God predetermined prior even to his foreknowledge of your response <laughs> where you would go. He chooses you for heaven or hell. And that, again, that was Calvinist doctrine. He, you, or another way to say it was, you all are born damned, and he chooses ahead of time which ones to raise up, so that when he raises you up, it's by grace alone, not even by your response of faith. In fact, he gave you the response of faith, and he's withheld that response of faith to the rest. Well, to me, that's just a monster god then, who arbitrarily damns the majority of the human race to eternal conscious torment by his own um, sovereign will and for his own glory. And he will be glorified as the righteous look on the judgment and the torment of the damned as a reason to worship God. I'm like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> you know, um, so how shall we read this then? Um, especially in, the, in, in Ephesians chapter one, what is being predestined? The thing ultimately being predestined is that everything would come under Jesus' feet. God has sovereignly foreordained 
that at the end of the day, everything would be summed up in his son. son. That's the predestination. It's sort of, um, it's sort of like there's this airplane and it's bound for a destination and it's going there. And the airplane is Christ. And those who are in Christ will be on that airplane. So in that sense, they're predestined. The question is who will be on the airplane? Okay. And how do you get on the airplane? And so some would say um, you get on the airplane by freely purchasing your ticket. And then others would say, well, you get on the airplane by, because Christ invites you into the airplane. And um, others would say, well, you'll all get on the airplane. But the point is that predestination is, is finds its definition in Christ, not in the individual. And so, and so Ephesians 1 is mm. talking a huge cosmic picture of how it's all going to pan out. And how it's all going to pan out is that every that, that everything would be summed up in Jesus. So, um, so it's a, it's a pre, it's a predestined plan by the sovereign love of God to restore the cosmos and everyone in it. That's a good version of it, I guess, but it's a, it's a real debated. It's for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, can you lose your salvation? Can you, you know, these type these are the questions that, a lot of people yeah. ask, and I think they, they perhaps maybe when they were young, maybe they attended church and who knows, you know, who knows what variety of church they may have yeah. attended. Um, these are all questions that people ask. So um, I think that's a good one. Maybe well, Brad, yeah. can I lose my salvation? Yeah, I, I recognize that from what I grew up in a Baptist church where happily <laughs> we, um, we spoke about assurance of salvation. And, um, and so, so we treated salvation as this thing you get or you, are, you were out and now you're in. Mm. Could you go out again? So as a young Baptist, I was taught in our, our particular denomination, um, no, you once saved, always saved. And if you left your salvation or backslid, you wouldn't lose your salvation, but you'd lose your assurance of it, rightly so. Or if you backslid so far, you might just demonstrate you never had it in the first place. But if you really had it, you'd really keep it. Well, all of that relates to a vision of salvation that is about I, I was out and now I'm in. How did I go from out to in? I prayed the right prayer. I believed the right thing and so on. And um, I just don't think that's how the New Testament conceives salvation at all. So our language had been, well, when did you get saved, brother? What we meant by that was, when did you go from out to in by saying the prayer? The New Testament vision of salvation is much grander than that, and more beautiful and complex. It has a past, present, and future dimension. The past, pre the past sense is, I was saved 2,000 years ago when Christ said it is finished. That's the past sense where Christ unites himself to the whole human race and raises us up with himself. But there's a future dimension, and that is, I will be saved when I'm when I'm when I rise from the dead and Christ gives me a resurrection body that's incorruptible. Do I have that yet? No. 
am, am, I, am I complete in the sense of, have I become fully Christ-like yet? No. Okay, that's still in the, that's part of salvation. Salvation is becoming, is, is that Second uh, Corinthians 3, that I'm being changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. I will be glorified. That's the future. The, the present tense. So we got past at the cross, future at the resurrection. In the present tense, I am being saved. And, and that is a journey of my transformation um, from darkness to light. And it's not as clear as in, out. Um, but I would say we have landmarks on our journey. And actually, for me, the sinner's prayer and my baptism were landmarks. Um, but there were landmarks before that, and there's been landmarks since that. So what we see is this long, sometimes windy journey of salvation. Um, can you lose that? What does that mean? Um, but, well, can I get lost? Yes. <laughs> and and, right. and uh, what does Christ say about the lost? That he will leave the 99 and search for the lost until he finds them. That's one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible, until he finds them. He will never stop looking for lost people. Here's the weird thing, though. It's like we think we know who's lost and found by the prayer. It's like, hmm. I, I don't know. Jesus seems to treat lost and found as by whether people are following him or off track. I know lots of lost Christians, and I know lots of non-Christians who are right on the right track. And in fact, I would call them Jesus following non-Christians, like even deliberately so. I have Muslim friends who are Jesus followers. I have 12-step recovery friends who are Jesus followers. You go, but are you a Christian? Oh, no. Have you said the sinner's prayer? Oh, no. <laughs> like, well, then why are you following <laughs> like Jesus? And they're like, because he's right. <laughs> and then I ask Christians who said the prayer, like, why aren't you following Jesus? Why don't you believe what he says in the Sermon on the Mount? It's like, oh, that's naive. Like, what? <laughs> so I've got non-Jesus non following Christians. Maybe I am one of those some days. But it's about a real life then, not just some ledger in the sky. Right. So can I lose my salvation? I, uh, I don't know. Here's the better question. Am I following Jesus today or not? And if I'm not, then I'm, I'm kind of lost. Is that like the idea of going from faith to faith? Yeah. Like Paul, is that Paul who says that? That's, I, I, would, I would count that as a, definitely a version of it. Um, like the, and you yeah. just see, uh, even some of the really good evangelistic um, thinking back, let's say the 80s, they started seeing that, that one's path from faith to faith starts way before the conversion journey. That's, I mean, the conver conversion, like you're well along the path already. So. Right. Were they being saved? They were, they were in a process. Am I still being saved? Yeah, I'm still in the process. I think it, is it, it's you that I've heard talk about it, like a dating and then a marriage type of relationship. Like That's people one don't way typically to get married yeah. the first day they meet or something. Right. Yeah. So in a sense, um, my baptism, they don't talk about the sinner's prayer in, in the New Testament. What they talk about is baptism as sort of a conversion ceremony, right? That's the... That's when you make your, it's, it's a covenant. And this is really a good Anabaptist thing too, right? Baptism is a covenant, um, like a marriage covenant. Um, but it's a bit bigger than that because 
infant baptism was practiced very early. Uh, family baptisms were practiced very early. So in that, that sense, it's also a family covenant. Um, that this is a this is a family who's going to follow Jesus, and that's why later on you have confirmation classes. It's like, well, I was baptized as a kid, but I really do need to make this faith my own. Will, so will I confirm the family covenant as my personal marriage now to Christ? But yeah, people dating people dating God <laughs> um, to find yeah. out, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Right, the disciples followed him a long time before they even figured him out. Well, even in, especially in Revelation, you know, who is the the bride of the church, right? Or who is the bride of Christ? Excuse me. Who is the bride of Christ? And that's the consummation of that marriage. Right. Yeah. And so in the meantime, Paul, I think it's also Ephesians 1, where the Holy Spirit is the seal, right? The wet, the engagement ring for that future consummation. Yeah. Okay. Let's try Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, Chad and I did just did a couple episodes on platitudes and like sayings that Christians use. Um, And one of the big ones was God is in control. And we were like diving into the meaning of that. Like, what do we mean when we say it? Is it actually true? Where is that found? And you know, if that's not entirely accurate, what is more accurate? And I kind of, you know, couples in my mind with a listener question that we had, which is what is the purpose of pain? Right? So this whole idea of like, if God really was in control, why is there so much pain and evil and suffering in the world? Like, I think that can be used as a, a, you know, a rhetorical argument against the existence of God or the goodness of God. So that's, I know maybe that's a long question, but how would you address that idea? Like, is God in control in your view or what does that actually look like? Oh, it's such a good question. So <clears throat> first of all, it, it arises out of our experience of chaos. Like if, if, if something horrible happens, it is a question around the problem of suffering. If something horrible happens, um, where is God in that? And, and it is a false comfort to say, well, God is in control. It's, it's a comfort in that it pulls me out of chaos because I'm terrified of chaos. I'm terrified of random events where a tree can just fall on your head and kill you. you know? <laughs> but it, it's a, it's a, it's a, so it's a comfort in that it offers you a way to, out of chaos into order. But the problem is you, it, that would be an evil kind of order then because it make God, makes God the author of every evil. Uh, God is in control. I remember we had a, a worship team in our church that really loved that song. And I know the worship leader was going through a lot of trials and he was getting comfort that if God is in control, then this is all going to work out for me. But the problem was I'm sitting there singing it with, and I know that there's a woman behind me who is raped and molested as a child. God is in control. Did God control that? Or was he not in control of that? If he's in control of that, then he's evil. And if he's not in control of that, what am I doing here? (laughs) So where we moved to is that um, that's a kind of control in that sense is really a kind of hyper sovereignty where God does whatever God does for everything's his will. 
And I mentioned Kelvin and Zwingli earlier on that. Um, it's all his will. He governs every evil, even Satan, you know. Um, what I would say now, and this is a, this is a more Eastern view, uh, that God does not do control. God cares. God loves. That random accidents and horrid evils through wicked people occur in this world and God not so where is God in that he did not cause it he's never the author of evil um, however he's also not absent he and he he enters our world enters the human condition and undergoes all of that evil in order to redeem us from it and through it so so uh, to the woman sitting behind me who had been raped, did God cause the rape? No. Did God leave or just sit in the corner watching it happen passively? No. God was there with her, suffering it with her and taking that suffering up onto the cross in himself. And knowing that can redeem her from that and set her free from the effects of, uh, of the rape. And so, so I, that's how I would say it is God is not... God does not control, God cares. But also, um, uh, someone else put it this way, God is still in charge, but he's in charge by love. So uh, there, are, there are ways of being in charge that God does not, well, like the controlling ways is, are not the ways he's in charge, but the loving ways. Uh, he persuades us by love, he redeems us by love. He heals us by love. So that's, that's the shortest version. I did a chapter on that, you know, a more Christ-like God called uh, something like shit happens and God is good. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, yeah. he doesn't cause it, but he's in it. Well, in, in a discussion I had with someone else on this topic, they were talking about God's unlimited creativity and they were used the word ingenuity like his ability yeah. to work through any situation without having to actually control what's happening. Yeah. He can actually it, work. Through, yeah. That's really good. I like that. Uh, I think um, Baxter Kruger says that, that the Holy spirit is a, is a redemptive genius. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he unites himself with us in the whole thing and then, and then weaves redemption out of it so thoroughly that I've had to actually people who've been who've been experienced great trauma say i don't wish that the trauma had happened but i have no idea how i could have got to this place without it right and it's because it's been so thoroughly cleansed and redeemed as part of their story now that brought them to who they are and and how they know god with the and the after effects having been cleansed out of them uh, this sounds a lot to me like hebrews 2 type mm. of stuff um, which I was actually just reading a little bit last night. I don't know, kind of randomly, but you know, just the, the idea that God, you know, that Jesus came and shared in our suffering so that we could relate to him. I mean, maybe could you talk about that a little bit more? Because I think this is sort of back to that beauty of why is Jesus important now? If it's not primarily or only because of the heaven, hell, where you go when you die, but like, what's the value of knowing him now? Yeah, that's really good. So, Hebrews 2 and also Hebrews 4 just talks about that, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us because he's experienced 
he's experienced the the fullness of the human condition and um and in so doing there's a very much a now a now element to this and this is archbishop lazar my spiritual father his life verse actually um is from here he says uh starting verse 14 inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, there is a bondage we are in now that has to do with death anxiety. Um, not just death as in I'm going to die someday and I'm going to... Um, <clears throat> And, and I'm going to, and I'm afraid of that, <clears throat> pardon me, but all of the fears that are how death reigns in me right now. And, and as long as death is reigning in me, it's driving us to these self-destructive or others harming behaviors and lifestyle. And, and when, when we realize that, that, that Christ shared with us um, in, in the human condition to heal the human condition, then he, he can heal us of the, all of the, the bondage of the human condition. And then he says, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Then this is a terrible translation. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, propitiation is a bad word in that it, uh, in English, it has to do with appeasement. He's not making appeasement. <clears throat> the word there, <clears throat> pardon me, the word there is hilasterion, it's mercy seat. He becomes that place where God and humanity are united in him on that cross. And, and Satan, sin and death, their power is broken over us. Well, that's like way better than just heaven and hell outcomes. That's right. me being set free right now today. That takes me back to Mark 1 in my mind, like where Jesus begins preaching the gospel of God, which is different than how I would have recited the gospel, you know, all throughout my upbringing and, you know, even up to a few years ago of like, you know, accept Jesus. So you go to heaven when you die, but he's saying, change your mind, like let your perspective be shifted to see this actual reality. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's good news, right? So right. the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. Well, we thought repent was this self-loathing kind of moralism. Right. No, repent is this. It's a, it's a turning of the noose, which is heart, mind, will. It's your innermost being. So it's, it's not just change your rational thoughts, right? It's turn your mind and your heart, the eyes of your heart, the part of your soul that orients itself towards God or away from God. And he's saying the kingdom is here. Orient yourselves towards the king who is here and understand that I have such good news for you, right? That's like, so, um, so I do know that out of the whole in reaction to the self-loathing version of repentance, um, we could accidentally overwork that into it's just, well, just change your, um, change your mind as a, like have a better idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more than have a better idea. In fact, uh, Ron Dart talks about the noose as the organ of the soul that turns towards the overtures of divine love. 
<laughs> so, or Plato even called it the eyes of the heart. Paul uses that language. It's we turn the eyes of our heart towards the light of divine love. And that's, that's repentance. Well, that's way better than just a law stick saying, stop smoking <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I would like to know about your new book. Would you mind sharing just a little bit about it? Yeah, the, the book is called In, Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And um, so here's the idea that I was seeing, I was seeing uh, a conflict. On the one hand, I saw evangelicals who had a high view of Christ, but their high view of Christ made them very exclusive. Like you can't know God unless you join our club. Unless, you can't know God unless you've said yes to the gospel. And so it was very inclusive, even though they, they see Christ in a beautiful high way. And on the other side, I got these progressive friends who have come to see that God's love is all inclusive and he's all merciful. And, and so that his love is higher, wider, longer, and deeper than we could ask or imagine. But in so doing, they, some of them are feeling like they need to diminish and marginalize Jesus from the story. Like they don't like John 14, 6, because, you know, if Jesus is the only way, then, you know, that, then how can God love everyone? And so they diminish Jesus in it. And, and my, where I start in the book is I, I just say, um, the, actually, the truth is the higher your Christology, the wider you will see God's love to be. Uh, the longer you will see its duration into all eternity, the deeper it will go into the very pit of hell. Um, the, the, the wider it will go to embrace all people, you know, and, and that doesn't happen by marginalizing the person of Jesus. It happens by seeing that this Jesus of Nazareth is also the Christ who is the light of the whole world and love to the whole world and the word to all that, that speaks to all flesh. So I start there and, and um, with just saying that a high Christology and an all inclusive, well, inclusivism, um, that they work together beautifully and, and they work together in, in that um, what I said earlier about the word and the light becomes then the lamb for us. And then also I, I use the Cornelius story and then I go into lots of examples. Um, and I'd like to tell you one story of an example where I've seen this. That's okay. Please do. Yeah. Um, so I have a friend named Esther and she was working in social services at a, uh, for a contractor where she can't talk about Jesus to the people who come in. But one day Stanley comes in and he's, he's this, he's got some developmental disabilities of some sort, but um, really at the end of himself. And his mantra had been, I'm a, I'm a lone wolf and I'm a black sheep and there's no place for me in this world. And he would say this over and over again. Well, this one day, uh, Esther gets to work and she can hear Stanley is, is crying, like wailing. And she says, what, what's going on with Stanley? And he's, he's just come from the hospital. He tried to kill himself last night. It actually tried to cut his own throat and didn't, didn't do the job. Now he's released. Weird. But, and so he comes to social services and he's crying. So she sits with him for about 45 minutes and, then, and just weeps with him because she's so empathetic. And then she's like, okay, what are we going to do with this guy? So she said, um, Stanley, um, what's the problem? Well, I'm a lone wolf, a black sheep. There's no place for me in this world. And so she says, well, 
Stanley, that's, that's, the, that's the darkness speaking. Um, could we look for the light? And so he says, okay. She said, can you see the light in the room anywhere? No. Can you see the light anywhere in your heart? No. And then she gets this idea um, from the Lord. Can you see the light in my eyes? And, she's, and he says, yes. And she said, ah, that's the light that's shining on you and loves you, Stanley. What can you hear the, what the light is saying to you? See, this is John 1, right? So he's seen the light in her eyes. Hmm. What is the light, the word saying to you? And he says, the light is saying that I'm a, I'm a good person with a kind heart and I'm worthy of love and belonging. And she goes, that's the voice of the light. We should write that down. So he goes to write it down, but he writes down the old mantra, lone wolf, black sheep, no place. And she says, Stanley, that's not what the light said. That's the darkness. Could we burn those words? And he said, okay. So he gets out his lighter and they burn those words up. And then he writes out the words that the light had spoken to him. And then, um, and, and then she, she says, if you could believe those words, how would that feel, Stanley? He says, I feel a lot better. So over the coming days, he would come in and she'd say, who are you, Stanley? And he'd start with his old mantra and she'd say, that's not what the light said. And then he'd give his new one until the light overcame the darkness. Hmm. When the light overcame the darkness, it transformed him in a way that the world around him started to respond differently. And he got a job and he got friends in his job. And then he, the friends wanted to spend time with him outside the job. And then he needed, he wanted to go for bike rides. And then uh, a friend of mine said, well, I'm going to put the money together. He just heard what you heard. He said, I'm going to put the money together and we'll buy a bicycle for him and his best friend. And they did that. Yeah. He started talking about how, um, about how uh, his, the woman that he could start to see, the woman who took care of him really did love and accept him the whole time and he didn't see it and now he had gratitude. Her daughter began drinking less and was, and her estrangement from her mother started to end and he could just see ripples of this light moving from him. He still hadn't heard the gospel yet, or had he? Right. Here's the light in him speaking to him, changing him and changing those around him. Uh, finally, outside of work, Esther was able to have coffee with him and said, you know, you're never alone, Stanley. There's always four of you. And he said, what do you mean? And she, she told him about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in you because that's who the light is. And, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was just like that. In other words, a recognition that the God he'd already experienced as light and word is the triune one who indwells us. And it made perfect sense to him. She had said, so you realize the light is God. Well, of course it is. <laughs> he knew that. And you, that you can talk to this God. Oh, I do all the time, you know. So she was having to do the catch up. But also she became the one who said, ah, the light and the love and the word is also the lamb. And, and, and all of your sins are forgiven and you don't have to be afraid of death and you don't have to be in bondage to it. So that's one of many stories in the book where we just saw a dramatic encounter that uh, by the time I was done writing the book, he still hadn't heard about the Trinity or Jesus. He was just living in this transformed world of Christ the light. Uh, but now it's gone much further than even in the book.
I love that. The, the eyes, do you see the light in my eyes? That's yeah. That was a risk, right? But she did it. And I see the light in her eyes and yeah, it was amazing. Amazing. Well, Brad, why don't you tell us how people can get your resources you have available, especially your new book. Okay. So if um, I'm on Amazon, that's an easy way. Um, And here's the trick though. You have to type in Bradley Jersack for some of my books. Um, (laughs) Amazon didn't merge Brad and Bradley. So the ones I are, so this, this one's most of my books in the last 10 years are under Bradley Jersack and they can also visit me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And, and I'm, um, I have a website, bradjersack.com. Great. Thank you so much, Brad. We appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you. Good to see you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to mention real quick, the open table conference um, that you're a part of, I know, would you yep. just describe that real briefly? I think that's another great way for people to, you know, experience what you're talking about. Yeah. So Open Table Conference is with Paul Young, Baxter Kruger, Kruger Katie Skurja, and uh, Kenneth Tanner, um, and John McMurray, who runs it. And if you find, and so normally what we do is we have, conf- we'll set up a conference in a, in a location like Oregon and so on. But now we've got... Um, uh, we're going to be doing a virtual one. And so they can, I, I, I think um, hopefully you guys can find a link to open table conference yeah. and put it on um, along with this. I've and, seen it on Facebook at least for sure. Yeah. And, and we'll be streaming live and people can sign up for that and we'll each take turns talking and doing Q and a and so on. Yeah. And I mean, just you guys are talking about what generally speaking. Um, largely about, the love of God, uh, the triune love of God who welcomes us through Christ into the life of the Trinity. And so, so it's very Trinitarian in the sense that, that uh, we participate in the life of the Trinity by virtue of Christ uniting himself to us, including us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so when Christ ascends and he sits with his Father and the Spirit, he, we're seated with him there. And, and so somehow knowing that can be a present tense reality for us. And we experience God as, as, as a beautiful, the beautiful gospel of, of divine inclusion. Yeah. Perfect. Good, good. Well, yeah, like uh, Chad was saying, we really appreciate you coming on. I always love hearing from you and talking with you. Matt, after hearing somebody like Brad talk for a little bit. Yeah. I don't know about you, yeah, but I could sit down and, yeah. Roll these things over with a good cup of Shenandoah Joe. Uh, that's right. <laughs> it kind of requires that, doesn't it? It does. Like you have to have a stimulated mind in order to be able to sift through some of these things. I know. And you know, one of the beautiful things is there's that smell when you're brewing that coffee. I know. And it starts activating some of those parts of your brain. And then, yeah. and then you that warmth of the cup when you hold it. And then you take those sips. And by doing that, yeah. And ordering some Shenandoah Joe, you're supporting yeah, you're our ability to bring it. Yeah. That's right. Renegade Alice. All you have to Keep do is on when, the air. That's right. When you go to check out, or type in Renegade at, for the promo code. You yep. know there's no discount. Yes, you are supporting our show. So that's right. please do it. <laughs> Just gonna be upfront about that. Yes, that's right. We we absolutely do depend on that. Yeah. But getting back to what uh, some of the post discussion of Brad's mm-hmm. what he shared with us today. Um, 
You know, I, I think that one of the blessings that Brad provides is he is willing to um, gracefully uh, go after some of the sacred cows that right. many people who use the name Christian attached to Christianity, which are not necessarily true. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the platitudes thing we just did exactly. the last couple of weeks. Like, and we even talked about that some just now with Brad, you know, some of those thoughts and are these things that we're, that we think and believe, are they really the most true and the most helpful to us? Yeah. And it, it is, it's hard sometimes to be open and just allow someone to dig in and challenge those things. We just immediately want to, you know, shut down or resist it. Right. But we, you know, if you spend 10 minutes thinking about it, you can always go right back to what you believed before. Right. <laughs> There's I mean, nobody no, stopping no. you from doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> you know? But like, no, let's you, explore. Yes, they are. No, yeah. they're not. Wait. <laughs> and let, yeah, I don't know. It is good. Yeah, I, I don't know how much we want to talk about what we just talked about, but. Well, um, I think that one of the things that is a very salient point that I think has been brought out from both the platitudes discussion mm-hmm. and from Brad's discussion today is um, I very much believe that God is in control. Mm. And you and I have very differing definitions, I think, of what control is. And maybe it's right. from our life experiences. Maybe it's how we view grace or faith or God's work or what authority is in life, you know, what control truly means. Yeah. But um, that's a great example where I, you and I can have a discussion yeah. and totally respect each other and not necessarily right. agree to the T, even though we agree in yeah. the outcome. Yeah, exactly. Fundamentally, but there's these different, it's, I think it all comes down to different emphasis and like different bias, you know, like what your right. life experience is and right. where you're coming from, the things that resonate with you more or less or make more sense or, you know, the words we use that and the way we define them even. Exactly. Like that word control. I think you and I just have different images in our mind of what that actually means. Yeah. And so it flavors it. It's good. I think what we ought to do is, you know, actually wrap this episode up and then come back next week and sort of debrief this whole conversation today and tie in the things we've been doing over these last few weeks with Created to Be Wise. I think you're and right. And we can kind of maybe put a bow on it. I, I think that that's a beautiful way of kind of bringing this whole area that we've explored into a, a landing. Um, boy, it is it is really amazing how God has given us some great people to interview, to yeah. talk about, yeah. some great uh, fodder for discussion Totally. And it, we're just seeing where it's going. And I think that in the next month, there's even going to be more amazing discussions we're going to have that are born out of this. Yep. yep. All right, everybody. Where can you find us, Matt? Oh, yeah. Uh, email us at guide at the renegade atlas.com. Or probably even easier than that is just go to Facebook, Renegade Atlas, our Facebook page, and we can interact there. You know, questions you have, responses to the show, any of that. All of it. Awesome. Thank you much. Uh, We really do appreciate you listening. And please make sure to share it with everybody you can. (laughs) Bye-bye, everyone.